Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Now, I recognize that um, we are, um, I don't know, doing an experiment this morning. Um, How can we endure, right? It's warm in here. Um, Our director of operations sends his greetings from sunny Costa Rica. Um, And uh, we are pretending we are in sunny Costa Rica um, today. So it's hot in here. My apologies. Um, We did have individuals that that came. I I don't know actually the whole story. Um, My understanding is like it was supposed to be Arctic in here when you arrived this morning. It is not. Um, We're going to endure. I'm going to do my very best. So at the end of this message, I will have done my very best um, to take my... 11 pages of notes, and to have shrunk them down into a reasonable attention span for um, modern Americans sitting in a hot, stuffy auditorium on a Sunday morning in August, okay? So I'm going to really try to do my best to communicate God's word. I know that you're going to do your best um, to, to pay close attention. Cody gets back at the end of this week. Um, he does send greetings Thank you again, he, um, Patricio um, Perez, who is here, um, as well as the pastors and their families that, that attended the final training of Word Partners. Say thank you for your generosity. Um, they, they say that with deep, deep emotion for giving them this weekend, having completed four years of training. Some of them is the only formal training that they have as pastors. All of them bivocational pastors, all of them working very, very hard to deliver the word of God to congregations like these. These are intelligent men and their wives. Um, you know, they, they are living in um, a developing country, and you have provided for them something that, as you look around the auditorium and you see the sticky notes, has happened here for your small group leaders and others, and happens here for pastors in Southwest Michigan. So we are replicating what we're doing in our small groups, what we're doing at a leadership level, what we're doing on a missions level, and you're a part of that. So um, let's, you know, let's thank God for the grace that he gives us, and um, without God's grace, we would not be so generous. Um, But you have impacted the lives of, um, of many congregations just like this this morning. And um, so God be praised for that. Psalm 2 is a very important psalm. It is the second half of the introduction of the five books of the psalms, the collection of psalms that are together in five books. If you look at, if you look at your Bible, you'll, you'll note that um, above the, the, the title here of psalms in the psalm 1, it probably says book 1. And so there is a logical flow to the structure of, of this book. And I won't go into all of the, the introduction that I did last week. If you weren't here, you can go back and catch that, that message online. And so um, you're into the, the flow of the collection of the Psalms. But it plays a very important role. Um, the reason is Psalm 1 introduces the law. It introduces the law. Psalm 2 is all about God's grace. Now, pause for a moment. Because... You are going to be, I don't know, frightened, offended, taken back. I don't know the language, depending on how you react to what's happening in Psalm 2. Because for our modern sensibilities, this particular psalm and God's action sometimes is just a little bit grating uh, on us. And we'll look at that. It's an interesting 
It's an interesting depiction of the attitude and action, the, the tone that God has um, with mankind, with us, with us in, in our sins. Psalm 2, though, um, it, it's, it starts off in a very, very fascinating way because we get an insight into what's happening in all of world history and an insight in what's happening in heaven. That's a pretty great view. You know, we say, this is the 10,000-foot view. Here we have the, the cosmic view of things. That's a great perspective to have. That will make a difference in your life today and tomorrow and throughout this week if you just look at Psalm 2 and take that cosmic perspective. It is about a covenant, okay? So this idea of covenant comes into play here. It's the Davidic covenant. So God's people were a nation brought out of Egypt and brought into the promised land, and God said that he would have a king to rule over them. In other words, God's telling them, life is going to be good if you trust me, right? Life is going to be good. And we need to find that life is good by God's standard and not our standard, because God's standard is way better than what we can imagine. Life is going to get to be good because I'm going to set my king, and he's going to be the one that's, that's going to rule well, and life will go well under my rule and reign. And so it's about this particular covenant. Now, God deals with us in terms of covenant. We can start all the way in the Garden of Eden when God deals with mankind. There's, there, there, is, there is a covenant in the Garden of Eden. There's a Noahic covenant. There's an Abrahamic covenant. There is a Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, this promise of God. God is always making promises. Let me read for, for you. Um, from 2 Samuel before we even read the text this morning because this will set the context. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, it is the prophet Nathan and it is David that, that, it, that are here and God is giving a particular promise. David, through, um, um, through Nathan the prophet, he spoke and he said, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people of Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you i will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth and i will appoint a place for my people israel and i will plant them so that they will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men will afflict them no more as formerly from the time that i appointed judges over my people of israel and i will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you will lie down with your fathers and I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his king forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Very important phrase. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. This is the promise of God. Now look at the text. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? 
And the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And he will, um, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned. O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. And here we see that there is in verse 2 of of the text, this one who is anointed um, in in verse 2, but his, I'm sorry, verse 2 is the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Who is this anointed? We're going to see that in Psalm 2, even though this is a a psalm of David, it's a psalm that was used at the coronation of every king of Israel, um, that this anointed is Jesus himself. And so this morning we're going to look at four sections in this psalm as we then apply this particular psalm to our life. So in verses 1 through 3, we see sin-fueled rage. A sin-fueled rage. This is the rebelliousness of the nations that is is described. And the rulers, those that rule over them, is described here um, in verses 1 through 3. And then we'll see in verses 4 through 6, this holy ridicule. It is God's response, this laughter that comes from heaven. And then 7 through 9, we'll see the, the kingly ruler, this decree from the kingly ruler. We hear the voice of the Lord's anointed. And then finally, um, in verses 10 through 12, how Jesus is our refuge. Jesus is our refuge. The kings of the earth and all the peoples of the earth, you yourself included, me included, are urged wisdom to take refuge in Jesus. And listen, here's the setup of this psalm for us. Here's the question of our heart. Here's where we're going to go with application. Do you take refuge in Jesus alone? Do you take refuge in Jesus alone? Let's get into the text here. First, we see the sin-fueled Rage. Look at verse 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So there's four parties mentioned here. You have the people. You have their kings, right? You have, so the rulers, the kings. You have God and his anointed. And what's happening in here? Can you see it in this passage? All the people of the earth are together with the rulers at their head. And what are they doing? What are they doing? They're raging. I didn't say raving, right? It's not a dance party. But they're raging. Now, 
Um, this, this, there's particular language that I want to see uh, you to see around this because when I read this text, I, I tend to think like of this like raging horde of like barbaric people like on this battlefield and like arr, 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 you know they're ah they're angry and, and that kind of thing. That could be what's happening here, sure, but it's broader than that. Does it in, does it include the people that are just like? out of control. They're, they're in a rage. They're whipped up in yes. We see that when Moses goes up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, um, to get the Ten Commandments, and he comes down, and there's this noise he hears in his ears that, that the people are worshiping now this idol. And, the, and there's the language of how they're worshiping is very, it's very descriptive. Um, it includes this raging that's here right? They're, they're worshiping. They're, they're, it says in that passage that it describes in Exodus that they have let loose. And here, we have to, we have to understand what, what they're raging against. They're raging against God. That's key, right? It's saying, let us throw off his bonds. We want to do what we want to do. We really know better than God. But you see, if we would be amiss if we simply took it as these raging people, out of control. Why? What do we say in our hearts? Right? The, the, the text is going to help us with this because it's a broader term. But what do we say in our hearts when we, when we picture this like out of control, barbaric people, you know, raising their fists at God, you know, almost like, um, you know, people from thousands of years ago. Not modern people. Not me. We don't do that. And we have organized protests, but that's, of course you know, against other things, and, you know, we don't have that kind of stuff. We say, that's not me. I'm not that person. Well, let's broaden this. Let's broaden this, because the idea of rage here includes grumbling. What? Well, wait a minute. Now, this heads up, rhetorical question. Anybody in here? Rhetorical question. Anybody in here not guilty of grumbling? Okay. So you either understood that it was a rhetorical question and you didn't raise your hand, but I said rhetorical question on, on, because I didn't want anybody to raise their hand because what is true is who is a grumbler? Not rhetorical question. All the hands except for Megan Heaprink. Oh, oh, she got hers up. Okay. <laughs> We are all grumblers. Sorry, Megan, I shouldn't have put you on the spot. We're all grumblers. We're guilty, right? So the text is very precise in looking at our hearts, right? What happens when we grumble? What's happening in our heart? Wait, did we see this kind of grumbling? We'll see this. I think it was by God's providence that we studied together this Thursday, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and Jesus says, I am the bread of life come down from heaven. Now, I'll tell you what happens in John chapter 6. Jesus uses this um, analogy, metaphor of who he is. It evokes a metaphor of, of grumbling because that is actually what happens in John chapter 6. The people of Israel were coming out of Egypt, going through the promised land, and they kept grumbling and complaining, saying, God, how can you take care of us? We're out here in the wilderness. 
We don't have water. We don't have food. We don't have... And God kept saying, will you trust me? Will you trust me? But what did the people keep doing? They're grumbling. What's amazing in Exodus is, is and this is, this is the kind heart of our God, is it says that God heard the grumbling of the nation of Israel and turned to them in their grumbling and provided manna from them, bread from heaven. So thousands of years later, Jesus, who is the bread from heaven, declares to that same people, the people of God, I'm the bread from heaven, and what do they do after he declares he's the bread from heaven? They rage against God's anointed. How can you be the bread from heaven? How can this be? They reject the very bread, the very promise, the, very, the deepest need of their life is that they stand in rebellion against God and God is food for their soul. They're empty and he comes to bring life and to bring life to the full. He comes to, so that they might stand before God as righteous. He, he, he comes so that we might live a righteous life as he lived a righteous life, not because we are blameless, but because he is blameless. He came to exchange his righteousness through his death, paying the price for our sins. The nations rage against God's anointed in rejection. Do, do you see the picture now? Do you see what happens in our own hearts? Is, is here we have in Psalm 2, the, the nations raging against not just David, but against the anointed, against Jesus Christ himself. And in, in, in here we see this um, um, in Acts chapter 2, Acts, Acts chapter 4, I'm sorry, verse 27. I'm not going to go into all of the crossover passages for the sake of time this morning, but what's really very interesting is to look at how the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, which are cited over and over again in the New Testament, are used in the New Testament. Um, in Acts chapter 4, it says this, um, it, after citing Psalm 2, um, the disciples say this, for truly in this city there were gathered together against God's holy servant and whom, whom God anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. And what was that? to take place, the death of Jesus. You see, here we have scripture commenting on scripture. When do the nations rage? Well, they certainly raged against David, but that can't be the fulfillment or the fullness of this psalm. They're raging against God. And where do we see it? We see it when Jesus is placed on the cross. Who is not included in that statement in Acts chapter 4? everyone's included. It's all the Gentiles. It's the people of God with their fist in the air. And that's what happened at the, cruci the crucifixion of Jesus. What was happening here in the crucifixion of, of Jesus is that the world was raging against. Verse 3 says, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. You know, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says that we are in a spiritual battle, that we don't wrestle against simply flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, right? It's evil in this world that is active. 
And so we see here that the, the nations are raging. Um, this is the same thing um, when Adam and Eve saw the fruit. What did they say? Instead of submitting to God's word and saying, what does God's law say? That is Psalm 1. Go back. Who's the blessed man? Well, we said last week the blessed man is Jesus because he submits to everything. The blessed man is what? Verse 2 of Psalm 1. But his delight is where? In the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. This blessed man is the man that says, what does God's word say? What does his word say? How do we live this out? And Psalm 1 actually condemns us. It's the law because we cannot live it out. We have to have God's grace. That is Psalm 2. Psalm 2. So what is God's reaction? Look at verses 4 through 6. It's holy ridicule. Verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens, who is that? That is God, laughs. But notice how it describes the laughter and holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and will what? Terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That phrase does what? Terrifies the nations. Let me, let me think. Let me, let me help you think. Does Jesus right now, does Jesus terrify the nations? This is your savior and your king. It's why we've called this series Songs for the King. He is coming and he's coming in judgment and he will terrify the nations. Now what is God's reaction to our grumbling and complaining to the nations raging and their rulers shaking their fists against God? Notice the character of God. He scoffs at them. It says derision. He mocks them. What kind of tone is that? You know, I've heard and read some of the commentators and um, this, as we get into the Psalms, we're going to talk a lot about emotions. Some of the commentators will say, it's okay to be angry at God because God can hang, handle your anger. Um, I would nuance that, and I would actually say that that's wrong. We have lament psalms, which are meant to take our anger to God so that we understand our anger as we turn to God and trust in him. So I would nuance that. But you'll hear this. It's okay. You know, God's God. You can be angry at God. But let me ask you this. Is it okay with you that God is angry at you? Is that okay? Or is there something that has been implanted in our thinking and in our heart that says, you know what? This isn't the teddy bear God that I really want. This isn't the God can't be angry at me. God can't frighten me in his fury. I don't worship that kind of God. Well, then you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. You're not worshiping the God of the Bible. This is evangelical Christianity today. Let's change. Let's substitute. Let's synchronize. Let's change God into something that's acceptable. Listen, this book is incredibly offensive to me. I hope it's offensive to you. 
Why? Because we come to the Bible with all kinds of things that need to be corrected. We have particular framework when we look at the Bible and it's the text that needs to correct our framework if we are to walk with God as one who is blessed. You know, as Patricio said and, and said, the word of God needs to do what? It needs to stand over us. And it says that God's coming in his fury against us. And here in this text, it says that it's for our good. Now, there's some people that say, well, look at how many times the Bible talks about love. Hey, our vision for this year is joy. Why are we talking about this God that is like, it's like Halloween. He's sneaking up on little kids and frightening them. Like, I'm just a human. He's God. That's mean. Well, that's not at all. We have an idea of God when we read these kinds of things. Imagine it this way. Two, two men go to their doctors. They go to their doctors. The one man goes to his doctor and his doctor says, Hey, you know what? You're such a nice guy. Man, you do all these good things. I just want to tell you how much I love, you know, I actually give you an extra five minutes. I know, you know, I'm on managed care, so I only get 10, but I give you 15 to diagnose what's wrong with you. That's sarcasm. And because I like you so much and you, you know, you do all of these things and, you know, and I, I need to tell you a few things. You got to keep taking your vitamins. You know, it's good for you. You're, you will, you will live your best life now. Take your vitamins. You need to do some exercising. Probably need to get on that treadmill. You know, probably need to go out with Pete and Mike running and biking and do those kinds of things. And, you know, you're going to be... And, and by the way, before you leave, you have cancer. It's curable. Um, I just, you know, I just wanted to throw that out there. Other guy goes to the doctors. And the doctor says, hey, the tests have come back. You have cancer. Now, there is a cure. Um, but you're going to have to really humble yourself. It's a little difficult. You see, when you put it that way, you ask yourself, who's more loving? Which doctor actually loves his patient? Which one represents the great physician? Well, it's the second. That's so obvious. And see, what, what's happening here in this, in this text is, is God's judgment. And he's coming and he's saying, I, I'm the judge overall. Look at verses five and six. Then he will speak to them, the rebels, in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. What does he say? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, his holy hill. Who is his king? Well, I'm gonna cut to the chase, take out some of the things that I had planned to say. It is David who is a prototype of Jesus. It is David who is a sign of the one to come. It is David that 2 Samuel promises that the one who will be the king forever will come. David and all the nations knew, and this is repeated over and over again, starts with the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, where a theme over and over again says, these are the generations. They were hoping for that one of promise. They fell, they had a terminal disease, and they were saying, but the one who's gonna correct it all is going to come. Is it, is it this one? Is it Noah? Is it this one? Is it this one? These are the generations up. These are the, up. repeated all through Genesis. And we got the, the kings. Is it this king? Is it this? Is it David? Is it Solomon? No, it's Jesus. 
the anointed. And so we see in verses 7 through 9 this decree about a kingly ruler. Verse 7, King David speaks in the first person. He says, I will tell of the decree. What decree? The decree that was described just earlier in verses 5 and 6. The decree of God to set a king in Zion, his holy hill. Now, in other words, David here is explaining. Let me tell you about the decree of the Lord concerning his anointed. It's not me. It's the one coming. And he says this, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now notice three things in the text. One, in this text, you probably won't notice it in your scripture. Some English, um, um, some English Bibles um, will flip and you'll notice that the terms, if you look there and you look at the word Lord, sometimes it is capitalized capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You see that in your text? Other times it is capital L, lowercase O-R-D. D. Did you notice that? If you didn't, circle it. Because those terms are changing. It's referring to particular names of God. And that's how the English translators are telling you there is a terminology change when it comes to referencing the character of God. In verse 2, God is called the Lord. All caps. Yahweh. That name communicates that he is a gracious God, the one who draws near, and he is the covenant-keeping God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And so it's fitting that in verses 1 through 3, we see that he is the covenant-keeping God. Then in verse 4, um, he is called Adonai. And this emphasizes the supremacy of God over all things and his great power. And then we see that David uses the name, it changes back to Yahweh. Why? Because he's telling of the decree or the command of God um, communicated to David by the covenant. Um, second, second, so we see, this, it, we see these names changing, speaking of God. Second, we read the words, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And we're to think of the covenant that God transacted with King David recorded in 2 Samuel 7. You know, the, the very words are not found in 2 Samuel 7, but the idea is there. The idea is there in verses 12 through 14 of 2 Samuel um, that there will be a king, one, one that is of God, that will establish that throne forever. And then third, it's clear from Psalm 2 and also the New Testament that this promise is about Jesus, David's greater son. It's clear that this is about Jesus. That he is the one that is fulfilling this promise and that all the nations will be judged by him. Matthew 25 verses 31 through 41 says this, When the Son of Man comes in glory and with all the angels, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him he will, be, he will gather all the nations and he will separate people one from another as shepherds separates the sheep and the goats and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who, who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The last thing that Jesus said before he went to heaven, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In other words, tell people that the judgment is coming. We've minimized that message. In our adult time, in our all-family Bible study, we learned about evangelism. And we talked through what does it mean to share the good news. 
Well, this is part of the good news, and it may be offensive, and it may be fearful. But if the love of God is in you, then all you need to do is speak the news of judgment and of the one who took the judgment. It's all together. It's all one story. Oh, there's always going to be a certain amount of fear. You'll always have something to lose. The Bible tells you that. But to suffer with, to suffer now is to suffer with Jesus if you suffer for his name. And there is glory both now and later to do that. You see, the word of God, we're not called to make the word of God palatable to people. We're simply called to proclaim the word of God. Spurgeon said, when he was asked to defend the Bible, he said, I don't have to defend the Bible. I don't have to defend Jesus. You sang about it. Do you believe it? You see, Jesus, the word of God, is like a roaring lion. Right? If there's a roaring lion walking amongst the rows this morning or in your home at home, what do you do? You're standing up on the couch. You're up on top of the chairs. Joel Zeiderveen in the, the booth might be the only one to survive. Right? Because he's a little higher than we are and enclosed in Sam back there. But what, what are we? We're at risk. You don't defend the Bible. You don't defend Jesus. You just let him out. And here, he's being let out. And what do you see? He is the king coming against the raging nations. And who is that? It is us in our grumbling and our complaining. It's us. I said that this is a psalm of grace. Right, come on, get to the grace. Okay, let's get there. Amen. <laughs> That's right, amen. Look at verses 10 through 12. Jesus, our refuge. So Jesus, he's the son of David. He's the son of God. He has an appeal to all the nations. And, and notice that the language there is fantastic because who is he appealing to? Um, we could spend a whole nother sermon, right? Because this is what, this, he's talking to nations, and we said this, he's talking to nations, he's talking to rulers, but notice that blessed are all who take refuge in him. <clears throat> Listen, when we talk about judgment, there's something that we probably need to talk about some other Sunday or maybe as we go through this. When you think about that judgment, do you think of people kind of one by one filing up before the throne of God and God says, hey, I'm going to judge you. Where do you find that in the text? Now, is it true? We will find it in the text. Are we individually responsible before God? Absolutely. But remember, we said this is all about a covenant. And in the church, we have a covenant. What I see here is what, what's going to be judged, right? The nations are going to be judged. Groups of people are going to be judged. That, that's just an, a key concept. Do you see yourself? Is, is your relationship simply you and Jesus? Or are, you, are you intricately connected to your community, to your nation, to your church? To, do, do you see yourself, if you see yourself individually, individualistically, right, you probably have some framework that you won't find in the Bible. You're, you're more connected than you think. You're more connected than you think. The system of this world 
wants to break you down to an individual. The more individualistic you think you are, the weaker you become, the more manipulated you can become. See, God is what? He's not interested simply in building up the character and godliness and walk of individual people, right? But he's interested in groups of people, covenant-keeping people. That's an aside. Jesus, our refuge, we listen, listen to how David delivers the gospel call here in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. This is one of the wisdom psalms. Right? It's categorized as the wisdom psalm. Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. If David the king and Jesus the king is saying this to the rulers of the earth, which, which ruler is not included here? Are there any rulers that are not included in that statement? Yes or no? No. If that is what Jesus the king is saying to all rulers of all nations of all time, so should his people be saying to all rulers of all nations of all time. Be wise. How are you wise? How is a person wise in life? Well, he doesn't leave us to figure it out our own way. That's what we want to do. Well, let me tell you what wisdom is. No, he says, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Think about that, okay? So in your homes, this week, around the table, you need to focus on that verse and say, what does it mean, family, to rejoice with trembling? What does it mean? Explore that. Um, that will have great payoff because it's part of wisdom. It's part of living. Figure out what it means with your children. They might say, I got a truck. Okay, that's nice. That's probably not it. But isn't that what we say? Rejoice with trembling. I got a truck. Yeah, that's foolishness. What does it mean to rejoice with trembling when it comes to God, to his anointed? We actually, we get the answer but when I ask you to, to think about that, I ask you to say, what does that look like in your family? Because here's the answer. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See how this ends? It ends in grace. Submit yourself to Jesus. Submit yourself to Jesus. There is judgment but what? There is blessing. It's only in Jesus that you actually get separated from the nations. There's even, the Bible's really clear, there's a sifting of God's people. Because there are some that are believers and there are some who are not. It's only in Jesus that you actually get your identity and then you are united with the true people of God. We, we don't know who that is right now. And so we can't claim to be a part of this invisible entity before the judgment. We're not. We are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not fear and trembling of whether or not we're saved, but fear and trembling of pleasing God. We are, what? We, we are rejoicing and trembling because we can now stand in the presence of God whose judgment was upon us washed clean because of the work of Jesus. That's an amazing thing. 
Listen, I've heard people who have come to know Jesus as Savior because they feared God's judgment. Amen for that happening. There may be young people in here when you talk to them about hell. Say, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. They need to understand the gospel. But praise God that he brings young people to Christ because they fear eternal punishment when all they know really is the loving chastisement of their mother and father. But they get an eternal hell. Like that, that's, that's God's work, right? That's God's work. And so what do we have to be? Jesus said it. We have to be like little children and submit to him in everything, all of life. All of life needs to come under what? The reign of the king. There isn't a ruler, a power, a people, a nation, any entity that you can imagine that doesn't come under God's rule and reign, right? And you're here this morning, you're here this morning, and you're hearing this, and your family is hearing this, and this, this word this morning is what sets your feet on the path that is a blessed path because it's the path that is blessed by Jesus. And so we're going to take some time. I'm going to pray and we're going to close, but we're going to give you some time to ask the question this. Are you on the path? In many of our small groups on Thursday night, you've, had, you've premeditated the response to this message. The people that wanted bread... The people that, when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, he just fed them real bread. So you need to ask yourself, is there any gift that God has given to you that you value more than the bread of life? Or is it all under his rule and reign and for his glory? Are you trying to go his own way or are you meditating on the word and saying, what does the word say? Let the word be a path unto my feet. Let the word be a light unto my, um, uh, unto my path. Let, let me go the way that the word directs. Are you walking in that way? You see, that's the only way that you can live where the trembling turns to rejoicing and you know how to live. But our hearts, they are so unrestrained and we have work to do in these next few moments. It's your work, it's the Spirit's work to do in you, on you. And so take these next few moments to consider. Are you, is your family, are we as a church, are we meditating on the law of God? And are we recognizing that we can never do it, that we absolutely need Jesus, and with Jesus, he gives great grace. Every morning, his mercies are new. Friend, will you receive that gift today? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage as well as the patient hearts of uncomfortable listeners. It's uncomfortable temperature-wise in this auditorium, um, and this passage is uncomfortable. But yet it's joyous, it's magnificent, it's beautiful. Because it's your word and it's life to us, it is bread, it is wine, it is feasting. When we know that no matter 
what our future holds and who you are, we know that we can trust in you. Um, there is a pleasant place. There is a confidence and a surety that only you give. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, that you would burden our hearts. Um, sometimes it takes hell to do that, to burden our hearts with the understanding that there is a, an eternal price to pay. But then in, in stark and deep contrast, soaring heights, we see your grace. Let us never minimize that. Let us never minimize you because when we do that, we fail to see your grace and we fail to confess our sins. So Lord, I pray that you would work on hearts this morning and that you would draw us together to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.